Amen. Thanks, Pastor Ted. Good morning, everyone. Wonderful to see you be uh, back together again, sing, pray, open the Scriptures. It's been a good morning so far. Uh, If there's uh, any parents who desire your kids up through fifth grade to go to some age-specific teaching that's offered now called uh, Gospel Project, everybody else, as Tad said, will be in uh, Mark 1, so you can turn with me there to Mark chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, you should be able to find uh, a blue Bible. Feel free to take that home if you don't have a Bible of your own, and you can just keep reading with us as we work our way this year through uh, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, to get going this morning, I want to play a bit of word association with you, all right? So I'm going to say a word, and uh, you just think. Don't blurt it out, please. Embarrass yourself. I'm going to say a word, and uh, you think about uh, whatever it is that comes to mind when you hear that word. You ready? All right. Donut. No, you're supposed to hold your thought, David. All right. Squirrel. Your faces are awesome. All right. Authority. My guess is, at least the first thought was positive. The second one was confused. The third one was probably a whole spectrum of thoughts about the word authority. Authority is in some ways the new four-letter word. In many ways, it is uh, a disdain for authority that is the primary driving cultural ingredient in daily life today. That is, any authority except for the self. But here's the thing. Everybody deep down inside somewhere understands that it is impossible to live without some kind of authority. And perhaps an example to demonstrate that would be helpful uh, this morning. Think back with me to uh, the summer of uh, 2020, particularly to June of 2020. In May of that year, George Floyd uh, was murdered. And as a result, protests spread around the country and then around the world. Many of those protests were peaceful. But in Seattle, the police, protesters, and rioters again and again clashed. And it got so bad that on June, 28th, on June 8th, the police simply walked away from one of the districts in downtown Seattle. Calls to defund the police had been rising, and so it appeared that there was a huge victory in the city of Seattle. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of protesters then uh, flooded into downtown and declared an area that would now be called the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. Do you remember that? All right, here's a picture of the, uh, the entrance into the area. If you can read it, it says, but this space is now property of the Seattle people. The plan was to create a, uh, an authority. This is messing me up again. If my ears would just 
not move from week to week. Everything would be good with the world. The plan was to create a, a, an authority-free, police-free, self-governing utopia. And the idea was that would be a model that would then spread around the country and legitimate problems like the horrific murder of George Floyd wouldn't happen again because where there's not authority, there won't be abuse or violence. That was the thought process. Seattle's mayor, even uh, three days later on June 11th, declared that the occupied zone would have, quote, a summer of love, end quote. A protester named Grace, who arrived uh, a week later, said this, quote, summer of love has begun. It was absolutely astonishing. There was a food co-op. There were classes, lectures, speakers, poetry, lots of live music, huge works of art. It was really beautiful, end quote. But the love didn't last very long. Twelve days after Utopia was formed, a 19-year-old boy was killed in a shooting. The next day, Father's Day, a 17-year-old boy was shot and suffered serious injury. Two days later, a third person was shot. Stories of sexual assault, reports of mental health crises began to surface. On June 29th, a 16-year-old and a 14-year-old were both shot on the same day, the 14-year-old being critically injured. So in the span of a mere three weeks, the dreams of a utopian oasis had been dispelled by the horrors of a nightmarish dystopia, and the area was disbanded on July 1st. Now, don't misunderstand, my point isn't political. I may be dumb, but I'm not stupid. <laughs> I'm merely demonstrating that our disdain for authority doesn't actually work. It's like the Arizona Cardinals, overpromise and underdeliver. The, the solution to bad authority can't be to abandon all authority. That is literally impossible. And if you don't believe that by instinct, then take the example I just gave you. In a three-week utopia in Seattle, we see a tragic example of what happens when people actually get what they think they want the ability to do whatever they want, whenever they want. It doesn't work. So how does the Bible address the issue of authority? More specifically, does Jesus have authority? And if so, over what? And how does he use it? And what's it like to be someone who submits to and is under Jesus's authority? Understand from the outset that these are not churchy Sunday morning debates with no Monday morning meaning. Now, these are questions of tremendous importance. Mark chapter 1, verses 23 to 34, is going to demonstrate that Jesus has authority in three specific arenas. And in so doing, Mark intends to show us that Jesus has authority over everything. 
an authority of unparalleled power that is always used for the good of God's people. Let's begin with the first example of Jesus' authority in verses 21 to 23. It says this, and they, now they is Jesus, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, those five people. And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Uh, Capernaum was a fishing town on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful area marked by uh, agriculture and a thriving fishing industry. It's estimated that somewhere around 10,000 people lived there at the time of Jesus, and it would become Jesus' home base for ministry throughout Galilee. He was run out of his hometown, and therefore he had to pick a new place from which to live, and he did so in this city called Capernaum. If you go there today, there's uh, a lot of ruins, and when you enter the gate of the city, there's a big sign that says, you're entering the city of Jesus. Jesus, no doubt, had been there many times before, but now he entered the city in a different way because he, he was no longer working as a carpenter with his dad. No, he was now exercising publicly his ministry as the long-awaited Messiah. And so Jesus called Simon, Andrew, James, and John to follow him. They dropped their nets. They then walked with him up that uh, western shore of the Sea of Galilee until they got to Capernaum. And on Saturday, they did what every faithful Jew would do. They went to the local synagogue. The foundation of that very synagogue still stands. And on top of it, a, a new church was built after Jesus' death and resurrection. From that point, it was merely maybe 300 yards to the home of what was believed to be Simon and uh, his brother. Today, there's a church built on top of the house with glass floors so you can stand above and look down into the house. This synagogue was not a temple. There was only one temple in Jerusalem, but there were many smaller places for worship scattered throughout the world. The Jews would gather there on Saturdays to pray, to hear God's Word read, and to hear it explained. Does that sound familiar to you? That's what we do. That's what Christians and followers of God have done for literally thousands of years. There was already some buzz about Jesus, so when the synagogue ruler saw him, he seemed to invite him to give uh, the sermon. The scriptures were read and a teacher explained that pattern was familiar to everybody, but that day was different. You, you could hear a pin drop as Jesus began to speak. His teaching was electrifying. Notice, though, that Mark says nothing in those two verses about what Jesus taught. His emphasis isn't so much on what Jesus said, but on who Jesus is. 
His teaching must have been like nothing anyone had ever heard before because Jesus was like no one they'd ever heard before. Notice that Jesus and whatever he was teaching was in contrast to the scribes. The scribes were what we would describe today as the the uber-educated PhD elite. They were the religious experts and the attorneys all wrapped into one. For many, many, many generations, the scribes and their interpretations of the Old Testament were thought to have a binding effect. And so, practically speaking, whatever they said about a text was what it meant. People didn't interpret for themselves. They didn't analyze what was taught to see if it was actually what was in the Old Testament itself. No, they they just took what the scribes said. And so by Jesus' day, the focus was much less on the Bible itself and much more on whose interpretation you could claim to be your own. And so a, a scribe would stand and speak and would say something like, well, Rabbi Hillel says, or Rabbi Judah bin Lala says. And so the teaching was anemic. It was devoid of any life-giving power. And for the most part, the scribes themselves, while widely respected, were hypocrites. So that's what people were used to when they went to church. In contrast, Jesus stood and proclaimed the gospel. And he said, the kingdom of God is at hand in me. He didn't say, Rabbi Hillel says, no, he said things like, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And while even a godly, sincere scribe could teach about what a passage meant, Jesus could say, I am what that text is describing. The point here is that Jesus has authority over doctrine because he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the Word incarnate. Rightly understood, Jesus is the interpretive center of the Scriptures and the hero on every page. These two verses, I think, underscore a a central warning for us today. The scribes knew a tremendous amount about their Bibles. Uh, Many people believe that they would have memorized the Torah, that is, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, memorized. Do you know five verses (laughs) from those five books? They devoted their entire professional careers to meticulous Copying, interpreting, teaching, deciding about what the Scriptures say. Nevertheless, the consistent testimony in the Gospels is that the vast majority of these scribes and Pharisees seemed to know about God without knowing God. 
What a damning tragedy. Beloved, beware. Growth in knowledge about spiritual things detached from a life-giving, vibrant relationship with God in Christ. Beware. Especially in a church like ours that tries to be thoughtful about following the Scriptures. That makes us more susceptible to this than a place where doctrine is not prized. How do you know the difference between knowing about versus knowing? Well, I think the simplest way is just to ask yourself, am, am I thinking and living differently as a result of what I've heard? To put that a different way, does hearing God in the Scriptures regularly lead you to greater worship, to greater dependency, to more awareness of your sin and more delight in your Savior, more frequent joy in prayer? Or is it just amassing facts? That's the difference. You see, the Bible is the fire we sit near so that our cold hearts are warmed by grace and truth again and again and again and again. The greatest pursuit in life is to know God. And so, brothers and sisters, today, God's ready to rekindle your love for Him as you look on Christ, as you hear from the Father as the Spirit draws you in again to the truth. Jesus has authority over doctrine. Now let's press on because not only does Jesus have authority over doctrine, He also has authority over demons. Look with me at verse 24. Immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, What, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Apparently, as Jesus taught, a, a man stumbled in the back, and it was immediately evident that there was something off about him. Not off in, a, in an emotional way, not even off in a mental health kind of way. It wasn't that he smelled bad or he didn't follow other social cues. No, it was evident that he had a, a problem, a severe problem that was spiritual in its roots. While those of us in the room who are steeped in modern Western American culture might struggle to believe that that kind of thing happens, the majority of the rest of the world has no trouble at all understanding that this is common. I wonder if some of us, the only time we think about the immaterial world is when we're watching movies like The Conjuring or 
playing games like the betrayal at the house on the hill. I pray that God would help us today to see this isn't the stuff of entertainment. But rather, something to take very seriously. Verse 23 says, there, there was a man with an unclean spirit. Unclean spirit is a synonym for the more common term as we would know it, demon. Mark will use both this year as we work our way through this passage and passages like it. Mark, more than any other gospel writer, demonstrates that while demons are more powerful than people, they're no match for Jesus. And he's going to show us that again and again and again and again. Apparently, it's something we need to know. Now, because Mark addresses this five, six, seven, eight times, I won't attempt today to answer every question or get our arms fully around the issue. Rather, we'll just try to grow a little bit in each passage we come to that deals with this particular issue. What's vital to glean from this text is that somehow this guy was not merely impacted by worldly ideas. He hadn't just been taught demonic doctrines. No, he, he had come under the influence of the demonic. And not only had he come under the influence, but he was oppressed by this demon. He had lost control of himself. The unclean spirit spoke through the man's voice. Now, I have no idea what that sounded like. But Jesus knew the source and decided to silence it. Notice as you look at these verses that Jesus didn't whip out a magic wand and wave it around. No, he, he didn't cast a more potent spell. He didn't whip up some potion or bust out the essential oils. There's nothing fanciful in Jesus' response at all. It's not at all like the stuff you see from Hollywood. No, Jesus simply spoke. Verse 25 records his words. He said, be quiet and come out of it. And that's precisely what happened. By the words of Christ, demons fall mute and flee. Now, there's much, much, much more that could be said here, but friends, mainly in this first text dealing with this issue, what I want us to think about today is God, Satan, angels, demons, real, 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 not fake, not the stuff of people way back when they didn't know any better. Christian, if you're concerned that you may have a problem that's demonic in origin, fear not. For greater is he who is within you than he that is within the world. Yet don't ignore the issue. Jesus has authority over demons. When he speaks, they fall silent. When he rebukes, they flee. Some people might struggle to understand who Jesus is. 
But no demon has that problem. They all know. They believe. They recognize who Jesus is, but they refuse to submit to him. And they're hell-bent on messing with anyone and everyone who will allow it. Fear not. Call out to Jesus for help. If you need help doing so, call on one of your pastors to walk with you in that. Jesus has authority over doctrine. Jesus has authority over demons. Jesus also has authority over disease. Look with me at verse 29. Immediately, he, that's Jesus, left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up. The fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Mark seems to have written this in such a way and placed it here very early in his account of Jesus' life and ministry in order to say to us, what was a typical day for Jesus? Well, They weren't all exactly like this, but many of them consisted of these things. His main agenda item we know, which Mark is going to show us next week, his main agenda item was to preach the good news. But Jesus was also concerned to help the whole person. In fact, you may have noticed the theme in the songs that we sang today, that In the kingdom of God, all things will eventually be made new. All forms of suffering one day will be a thing of the past. As the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it, everything sad will come untrue. So when Jesus left heaven and he came to earth as the perfect God-man, he demonstrated who God is. He showed the compassion and kindness of God in all spheres of life. And he revealed what will eventually be true for every single follower of Jesus Christ. Forever. All forms of suffering in Christ at his return for the people of God will never be experienced again. That sounds pretty great, doesn't it? Where people were starving for God's word, Jesus taught as one with authority. Where people were oppressed by demons, Jesus silenced and sent them away. Where people were sick, Jesus brought healing. Now that does not mean that every person on the planet or even every person in Israel who was sick during the life of Jesus had their sickness removed. 
There's no indication in the gospel accounts that that's true. But the healings he, he did perform were real. And they, they had a specific purpose beyond just the ministry to the person. They were to testify of who Jesus is. They were name tags, marks of Christ left to demonstrate that one day we would see every sickness as a thing of the past, as momentary problems for the people of God, not as defining uh, character or identity traits that last for eternity. If you glance with me back over, particularly verses 29, 30, and 31, notice that after preaching and freeing a man with the demon, Simon and Andrew seemed, seemed to have invited Jesus over, perhaps for some good old chicken and waffles, because that's what you ought to have after you preach. <laughs> but when they got to the house, there wasn't any, anything ready to eat. Simon's mother-in-law had become quite ill. She was sick enough that everyone was really concerned about her. And so immediately they said to Jesus, Jesus, this lady we adore is ill. And illness is not the way it's supposed to be. And so Jesus walked over and in compassion and love, no doubt he stooped down next to her and simply took her by the hand and lifted her up. What power. Instantly, the fever was gone, and she arose completely fine. And furthermore, given that on Jesus' first day of public ministry and into his first week, all of this had happened, the, the ancient Twittersphere was blowing up. And so, as soon as the Sabbath ended and people were allowed to go about their normal business, then they rushed to Simon and Andrew's house. If this was a town of 10,000, imagine if even only 20% of them showed up, banging on the door. Mark seems to go out of his way to describe, they're all there. Verse 34 says that Jesus healed many who were sick, and that he cast out many demons. What an incredible sight that must have been. There were no demons he couldn't expel, and no diseases he couldn't cure. What does that tell us? It tells us that he's greater, that he has more authority and more power, and he uses it not to oppress, but to free. Now, a couple of observations about this. A couple applications in these observations, and then we'll be done. First observation. Nowhere, not a single time, did Jesus advertise 
Come to Capernaum where there'll be a festival of healing. He never launched a giving campaign connected to pledges that if you give, then God will heal you because God heals faithful givers. In fact, Jesus never promised healing in this life at all. He would go on to say, in the world you will have trouble, all, all kinds of troubles, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What I'm trying to say is that the healing ministry of Jesus was absolutely nothing like the phony healing ministries that get pressed today. The garbage you see on TV is just that, garbage. It's not reflective of what Jesus did in the Gospels. Now, I have no doubt at all that God continues to heal. I've seen some really, really remarkable things that have no other explanation, but that God did that. And yet, I've also seen many godly people be prayed for by many other godly people and live for decades with horrific diseases in which the power of God is seen in sustaining the person in their suffering rather than in ridding them of the thing causing the suffering. God has the right to do either one. I hope that we're all confident that God will one day rid every Christian of every physical, mental, emotional, psychological, and spiritual ailment. They're all temporary. But He's in charge of the timing of their end. We'll all get resurrection bodies in the new heavens and new earth. I'm looking forward to one. This one's not faring too well. If you're sick, ask God for healing. If you're sick, be on the sniffles. Then James chapter 5 commands you to call for the elders of your church to come to you and pray for you, to ask God that you would be healed. Your elders don't get near enough calls like that. God sometimes heals, but beware of any so-called preacher, church, ministry that promises you health, wealth, and ease, because they're lying. God does not promise that. Therefore, His followers must not promise that. Those are lies from the pit of hell, not promises from the pages of the Scriptures. And unfortunately, that kind of junk is all over the place. And it plagues especially the poor. It's a tra tragedy. Jesus had no interest at all in worldly fame. He was all about fostering faith. 
He was training for multiplication, not manipulating for notoriety. Again, Jesus can and sometimes does heal. But please hear this. Our greatest need today is not physical. It's spiritual. Jesus' life was preeminently about his substitutionary death. Everything he did was to identify who he was and point forward to that day in which three years later, he would die on a cross, paying the spiritual debt of all of God's people by taking the wrath they deserve upon himself. So that that wrath could then be averted from me, from you, from every other person who trusts Christ be fully spent on Jesus. And then on the third day, he rose again, demonstrating victory, demonstrating authority, demonstrating that that sacrifice was acceptable to God. That is our greatest need. If that gets fixed, then every demon, disease, trouble, problem will eventually get fixed. But if you aim just for, I don't want to be sick anymore, or I, 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 I don't want to not have friends anymore, or I don't want to be sad anymore, if you aim for that, then you're going to miss the greater need. Now, a second observation. Notice as you glance back, particularly over, over verses 32, 33, and 34, that these verses say nothing about the masses who came that night. They say nothing about them pleading with Jesus to teach them more. Mark has just told us a third of his emphasis was that Jesus has authority over doctrine. That when he teaches, it's unlike anything else. But when the crowds came rushing and pressing on the door at Simon and his brother's house, it doesn't seem they were yearning to have the scriptures articulated to them in a deeper way. It doesn't say, tell me more about Isaiah or Exodus or Malachi. Show me yourself in there. In fact, there's nothing in the summary about the people desiring to know Jesus and his teaching in a deeper way. That's possible I'm wrong here. But I wonder if Mark is subtly telling us the masses wanted stuff from Jesus, not Jesus. Beloved, how easy it is to slip into the same. You can be saved and know the Lord and be engaged in church a long time and subtly, not obviously, slip into that. I know uh, this thing and this thing and this thing and 
I can argue you till you ain't got nothing else to say about this thing. But I don't know that one. That's scary. Jesus himself in the teachings in Revelation, as he spoke to one of the churches, he told them that they needed to return to their first love. That they'd wandered away. Now, he wasn't talking about the first crush you had in middle school. He's talking about your first ultimate love, namely God. Friend, if you are a follower of Christ, particularly if you've been one for a while, is there any sense in which you need to return to your first love? Jesus has authority over doctrine. Jesus has authority over demons. Jesus has authority over disease. And the critical thing to see here is that, therefore, Jesus has authority over all things. And he uses his authority for good. You can trust Jesus. You can trust God. When, when you yield to him, then you will sometimes be confused. You will sometimes struggle with the circumstances of life. You will sometimes feel like your prayers are just hitting the ceiling and bouncing back down. You will still suffer. But He will hold you and see you through. And He will use His authority to make you more and more and more chiseled into a person of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Because these are the fruit of the Spirit. They're the evidence of greater and greater Christ-likeness. This is what God uses His authority for in the life of His people. He demands everything. But as I said last week, you gain far more. Is there any arena in your life in which you are holding on to authority? Give it up. Because the occupied zone of your own heart in any little nook and cranny is not a place from which good will come. But everything yielded to the Lord Jesus is a source from which good will come. We stand to me and let's pray. Before I voice a prayer for us, would you take a moment? and ask 
God, what he would have you do as a result of what you've heard. Father, ever since the fall in the garden, people have resisted uh, authority. We've sought to be our own instead of submitting to you. That pride is what's at the root of all sin. And yet today we do live in an, in an era in which the, the, the scent in the air is the stench of the hatred of authority. God, we thank you today that your scriptures written so long ago still speak to these issues. And we together as your people uh, repent of any and every arena in which we've sought to retain authority instead of submitting to yours. We thank you that Jesus shows us that uh, he has authority over things that can cause so much trouble. We thank you that he uses authority in such a way that God is glorified and people, that their lives are so drastically improved. Father, make us a church in which we are a people who delight to sit under your good authority. A people who delight to submit to the various forms of authority in our own lives entrusted to us. A church that if ever we have to exercise the authority given to us corporately, that we'll do it for good. God, I think about at the end of Matthew, Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me and what did that mean? How was it to be used? Well, go therefore and make disciples. God, as we live this week, we pray that as we speak in such a way that your truth is heard, then God, please use that life-giving word to save people, even in this room who have yet to know Christ. We pray all this with great thanks in Jesus' name, amen.